It's a great thing to get out in the water and enjoy a great day of fishing, yet we always need to keep the best interests of our family and assets in mind even when we are enjoying the great outdoors. Let Jeremy at Oxner Insurance help with that. He'll get you covered on essentials like auto, home, and life. Rest easy knowing that you have a shield of protection around your assets. Give Jeremy a call today at 775-657-6050. That's 775-657-6050. And rest easy. In this episode of Burritos, Breaks, and Flies, we are joined by Alistair Peake from Twin Peaks Fly Fishing. Alistair operates a guiding company in Scotland, where they fish for Atlantic salmon, sea trout, and brown and rainbow trout. He also runs a busy fly casting school, where he teaches single-handed and double-handed casting techniques. And they operate alongside the River Dee, with three miles of prime Atlantic salmon fishing on the lower river. Alongside the guiding company and casting school, the team also operates one of the Loop Tackle Field Centers, a fully stocked Loop Tackle Shop, and it's situated again right on the banks of the River Dee. So it's pretty cool. This is where customers can try out products on the water before purchasing and also get up up-to-date information on all the latest Loop products. So sit back and enjoy this podcast with Alistair of Twin Peaks Fly Fishing. <laughs> Okay, and welcome to another episode of Burritos, Breaks, and Flies. And today, again, we travel across the Great Pond to Scotland to visit with one of our uh, international guests, Alistair Peake from Twin Peaks Fly Fishing. Thank you for joining us, Alistair. Great to see you, Nico and Ben. Yeah, Nico and I are excited to have you. Um, You know, first, I want to just ask... Who is Alistair and where did Twin Peaks fly fishing begin? <laughs> Good question. So um, I suppose the, the name Twin Peaks fly fishing simply comes from, um, I've actually got a twin brother called William and we got in, we've always been mad keen about fly fishing. And uh, a number of years ago, we by chance ended up guiding on the same river. So after many years apart, just by chance, we ended up being sort of, separated by six miles apart on the river d and we we thought that hey let's um get into casting instruction let's get qualified got a really got a huge passion about um getting new people into the sport and so, so once we sort of did that then um the the sort of the business and the concept um began and there was no other name for us really than uh, to call it twin peaks fly fishing our second name's pete we're twins it was just an easy fit um and then it sort of it sort of just grew on from there. We were both full time guides working on uh, for two different estates on the river. So we were working six days a week uh, with guests on the the various different beats. And then we started giving casting lessons in the evenings. And a lot of people got in touch and said, um, you know, I'd really want to get into fishing. Can we get a casting lesson off you? Um, and it was going really well. 
And then it started to grow legs to a point where more and more people got in touch and we didn't have enough time to be giving more cast lessons because we were six days on the river, eight months of the season guiding for salmon. So every wow. spare second was taken up um, getting new people into fishing. So as a result of that, after a year or so, one of us decided to just step out of the employment in Scotland as a sort of resident guide on a beat and then get more into the sort of freelance guiding. Um, and that's where it sort of started from. And then on top of that, we're sort of mad keen photographers, uh, absolute amateurs at it um, and videographers. But we just love being out there with the with the camera um, and photograph photographing our guests having a really good time, um, photographing the fish that they catch. And then also when we get to go out on trips, starting to capture some of that uh, on film as well. Um, so, yeah, so in a nutshell, it was just the passion for getting more people into fly fishing was a result of, of Twin Peaks. And after sort of 12 years of sort of full-time guiding as um, what we call in, in Scotland, the ghillie, which is you would be employed by an estate to be an in-house guide on that section of river. Okay. So after doing that for around about 12 years, we then moved on to um, going a little bit more freelance. And this way we're able to guide on multiple rivers around Scotland and do, do trips abroad. Um, so yeah, so far it's been super exciting, um, meeting new people along the way, getting more and more people into fly fishing, which is essentially what we're really passionate about. Um, so yeah, that's where we are. I know, uh, I, I know Nico and I love watching your videos and, and uh, we appreciate your humility. You do seem to have a great eye for what to capture. And, Absolutely. You know, one of the things I was wanted to ask you about is uh, being on the spay in particular. I know that's a world famous river. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, the spay is about um, an hour's drive away from here. It is it's a phenomenal river. It's one of our fasting fl fastest flowing rivers. Uh, it gets really good runs of uh, salmon and sea trout. And of course, it's where spay casting, you know, came from. Um, you know, the, the, the spay is beautiful because it's so fast. It's a swinging river. You don't need to work the flies at all. It's, it's a sort of river where you can take a 15 foot rod, a 65 foot um, spay line and just literally spay cast, put a nice 40 yard cast out across the current and it will swing from the second it lands until it comes all the way down to the dangle. And it fishes all the way through. So it, it is the river where that traditional sort of uh, vision that we have of spay casting, those long rods, the really long lines, presenting the fly at distance and getting a really nice swing. That's, that is the spay. That, that's what it's all about. The, the D here, uh, the river that we're on, it's a little bit slower flowing. We're still fishing the same sort of tactics. But I would say um, the D runs a little bit clearer and we'll generally work the flies just a tiny bit more as well. Um, but it, it's funny, you know, I, I come across a lot of people, uh, particularly from over in the States, that um, are like, so what is spay? You know, what is it? Is it the name of a river? Yeah. Is it a type of cast? Right. Is it two-handed fly fishing? Is it double-handed fly fishing? What is it? And I suppose my first response to everyone, let's, let's say a trout fisher, is 
you are already spade casting. Every time you go out on the river, you are spade casting because if you take a, a nine foot five weight rod, you get the line out, you take the rod up and you're ready to perform a roll cast. Okay, well, the roll cast is the most basic form of spade casting. As a spade cast, essentially, to be a spade cast has two things. It's got a D-loop and it's got an anchor. If it's got two, those two things, right. then it's a spade cast, yeah? So a simple yeah. roll cast that people are doing, that's a spade. All the right. other variations of spade that we have is just a, a more dynamic roll cast. We're going to try and get as much line into the D-loop as we can to get more weight to bend the rod against. And then all those various other casts from the circle Cs, the single spades, the snake rolls, they're just a spade cast with a change of direction. That's all they are. So like the world of spay, I do as much spade casting with a, a single-handed rod as I do with a double-handed rod. If I want to present some wet flies square and, and the flies straight downstream of me, rather than doing two single-handed overhead casts, so I'm opposite the target, you can do a little snake roll and then one back cast, and then you've made a 90-degree angle cast just like that, super quick. So it's, um, yes, spay. We do it as much with single-handed rods as two-handed rods. Now, it was first designed so you can cast with no space behind you. So if we're fishing on the river spay, you're wanting to cast 40 yards you're going to need 40 yards of space behind you to be able to cast it that far. Yeah. So what they said is, well, okay, we're going to have a long line, but what we're going to do is we're going to land the anchor onto the water and have all this long line in a D loop from the rod tip to the water. So we can make those long casts across the river. Um, so yeah. Yeah. No, I, I yeah. Know. Oh, go ahead, I was going to say, you know, with with that's one of the, the biggest things that we picked up over here in the States and one of the biggest, um, you know, uh, <clears throat> pros to uh, a spay style, you know, with an actual spay rod or an actual switch rod away from a traditional single hand was, you know, traditionally over here, you're finding a couple different basic forms of fly fishing. You're you're seeing a lot of the uh, uh, the the quote unquote Euro nymphing type style you're seeing you know regular overhead cast you know people are you know just slinging a basic overhead cast uh maybe graduating into a parachute cast um you see some guys doing the roll cast but the biggest challenge that we have here especially in the west in some of these western rivers uh, especially along the sierras um and and other western waters is that you have a vast amount of open space however when you walk upon a river what do you have you have an amazing amount of vegetation all, all of a sudden pops out of nowhere and when you get in that river you find very few spaces to where you can you know to a do a regular or traditional overhand cast without you know hanging your whole collection of flies up in the trees or the bushes and that was a big big advantage for us um switching to a a, a switch rod or a spay rod or utilizing those casting styles on a little bit longer rod was that I could put my back, literally, I could I could get my shoulders in the bushes, you know, camouflage myself against our, our ultra spooky fish over here because everyone in the world's fishing for them. And, uh, and, and I could sit there and I could do a full-fledged, you know, roll cast or an underhand cast and, and reach those waters that I actually couldn't before um, with 
a little bit less work involved, you know, a little bit less fatigue, a lot less frustration. However, there is a little bit of a learning curve to it. And there is a bit of a, I don't know if you want to call it a stigma of, you know, spay casting is only appropriate for certain types of water. You, you know, spay rods and big switch rods are very popular with the steelhead, um, with the steelhead crowd, like in the Pacific Northwest, and rightfully so. But maybe, maybe you can speak to, from your experience, and maybe explain to our listeners um, the advantages of, and I, I think I spoke a little bit to them, but I'd like you to expand upon them. You know, wh- why, why a two-hand style um, or a two-hand style of casting uh, versus just, you know, rolling out to any water with a nine-foot rod and, and going to town? Yeah, well, it, it all, I suppose it all depends, firstly, on the size of water that you're, that you're fishing. And yeah. so what sort of distances are you wanting to cover? That will help you dictate the sort of length of rod that you're going to go for. Okay. And then what sort of flies you're going to be fishing. And that's going to dictate what line rating you go for. If you're going to be casting really big um, pipe lures, um, poppers, that sort of stuff, you're going to want a slightly heavier uh, line to turn those flies over. But the idea of spay is it's just more efficient. So I would say if you're swinging flies, yeah. So if yes. rather than dead drifting, because it's possibly not the most efficient types of casting for dead drifting flies but for swinging it's without doubt the most efficient because we're getting you can cast as far as you need to you can still particularly with the shooting heads nowadays you've still got an element of a retrieve so you can speed up or slow down that fly because you're naturally pulling that shooting head back towards the end of the rod tip but once you're down on the dangle and you're ready to make your next cast you're not making five six seven pulse casts looking for a gap in the trees behind you it's literally right. just one movement you're just landing the anchor and you're sending it straight back out again so you're fishing for much longer during the day like you say you're not getting so tired from overhead casting and and also the um the ability of just shooting line because the lines are slightly longer than a single-handed line. You're not having to, to fight that current of all the, all the slack line that's down by your feet that the current's dragging away from you. And you're having sure. to hold that in loads of loops. You know, a, a, a spay line's got a little bit more weight to it, so it's going to carry it out across that river easier. So generally, hold, if, if you're casting a long way, holding one loop is sufficient. And then you can just deliver that fly right to where you need it to. Um, and, you know, like we, like we touched on before when we talked about the river spay, th- there's loads of different ways that you can fish. So like the, the traditional way of fishing, certainly here in Scotland, is we're fishing like a, a, a double, whether it's a, a cascade or a willy gun or something like that. We've got a full floating line, maybe with some tips on the end to just present the flies a little bit deeper. And we're choosing our angle. So we're casting, you know, between 45 and 60 degrees. We're getting a nice long line across the current put a wee mend in if you think it's necessary to control the speed of the fly, but essentially we're swinging it across. But, you know, that doesn't always work. And I mentioned earlier that um, on the D, the, um, some of the pools can be a little bit slower, okay, particularly in low water conditions. But I'll quite often put on one of our shooting heads, cast really square with a, with a sunray shadow, which is a, a salmon fly that's made out of goat hair uh, that's usually around about three inches long. And you'll cast him out, nice. you'll down three men, and then you'll pull it back in. 
And the takes you get from the salmon and sea trout chasing this fly, you'll see a big bow wave coming through the water, chasing the fly. You'll see them come at it again and again and quite often miss it. But it also shows you that there's a taking fish there. So you can go back and work on that fish a little bit more. So what I would say regarding spay is choose your line for what you're trying to do. If you know you're going to be in the trees, and not much space around you, and you're wanting to work the flies a little bit, then you want a fairly short head, okay? So like a, a Scandi taper around about 40 feet in length on a on a 14 foot salmon rod. Or if you're going somewhere where you know, like the, if you're going to the spay, you're gonna want to have a 55, 65 foot spay line and just, you know, traditionally just swing those flies across because it's a real pleasure to do so. And it's, uh, it's a joy to fish those longer lines. Um, but what we have found over the last, well, probably since I've been on the river, over the last 10 years, when I first came, a lot of people were using long-bellied lines, and now people are moving to the, the shorter Scandi shooting heads, yes. primarily because if you want to change your head, it's joined by a loop-to-loop connection. So you can change it from a, a full float to a float intermediate to a sink 1-2 or a sink 2-3, so you can change your depths very easily. And actually, you don't even need to get out the river. You can change the head while you're out there in the river. So it offers a lot of versatility. And the nature of shooting heads being usually around about 40 feet in length, it means that beginners can pick up spade casting really, really quickly. You know, it's not an easy task to, to, to cast a 65-foot spay line around if you're a newbie. You know, it's 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 not easy. It's not. So these not short heads it much much easier for people to get into the sport and we, we offer various different casting lessons and casting courses and generally people come to us and they say um i've got a day's fishing next week i've never fished before i need to learn what i need to do so we very much get them on the uh, the scandy heads uh, we teach them the basics the roll cast and a cast for an upstream wind and a cast for a downstream wind and get them to an ability where we're like, okay, you know which cast you need in what wind, you know how to do it, you're ready for your day's fishing, off you go. Other people will come and say, I really want to master spay casting, okay, and I'm willing to commit some hours with some instruction to really nail it, both the theory behind it and the, the actual casting itself. Then we'll turn around and say, okay, here's a 15 foot rod, Here's a 65 foot spay line. Let's do it with this. Because at the end of that, at the end of that course, once he's done every cast with a long rod and a very long line, he can now pick up any rod and any line, a Scandi head, a Skagit head, a, a full spay line, anything, because it's easy. Once you've started with the hard stuff, you can then pick up anything you want after that. That's awesome. And you know what? I, I have another question for you. You know, every Everyone has a, a a preference on on what what gear they go with, what manufacturer that they run with, and you know they may run off of what's popular or what their friend tells them. You know, maybe not necessarily what may be right for the application or right for them. And may, maybe you can talk a little bit about. I know you know with your um, association with uh, Loop Tackle. Um, what what brought you to, um, you know, go, going to loop using that stuff and 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 you know what what about it, you feel is is different 
than maybe everything else out there. Um, you know, if, if I'm the guy walking in the shop and you're teaching me how to spay, you know, or how to cast, and I'm like, Alistair, what, why, why we use loop? What, what, how come you're not using something else? What, what, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I'll, I'll try and explain what attracted me to loop in the, in the beginning. Perfect. So okay. it was essentially as a sort of, um, as a young lad, um, guiding, what I quite often used to find is you used to get these really interesting clients that uh, have come and they told us stories about fishing in Russia and fishing in Iceland and fishing at Jurassic Lake. And, you know, this is going back into the sort of 2000s. Um, and they were always using loop rods mm. and, and, and they could generally fish quite well. And that's where I fit, first saw it. And my, my first you know, not my first rod, but the first rod that I went out and spent quite a lot of money on was a Loop Cross S1. And mm. I literally walked into um, the Glasgow Angling Store and I'm a 17-year-old and I've saved up £600. And I'm like, right, I've, I've got this. Right, I want to try your three top rods, okay? And so I think I tried a um, G Loomis GLX. Uh, I, I tried, what was the other one? It was a... Uh, one of the sages and a loop cross s1 yeah to be honest i was a 17 year old getting into fly fishing and i can tell the difference between those three rods they're all premium rods all all worth the money that um that was being charged for it and so the, the the designing factor for me was just you know which one is i want to go for and i just related to that to that guest that i really liked and he told me all these uh stories of these amazing fishing trips and i spent a week gilling uh him on the river and so for me that tipped me over the line and then once I had my first rod that's when I started to investigate the brand a little bit more and mm -hmm. and you know see what they're doing online and eventually you know they were involved in travel quite heavily and their media was excellent the photography was excellent they had incredible videos um I I think for a young person it was very much a young person's brand um certainly back then so I felt like I could relate to a lot of the stuff there's a lot of aspirational um stuff that they had in the media um you know the classic um loop is, is, is the brand that showcased dry fly fishing for salmon if you want to see an atlantic salmon 30 pound come up and take a bomber on the surface you know, it's a loop video that you're watching most of the time you know yeah um and that was very aspirational for me and as i as i sort of followed the brand more and more i started to get in touch with some of the people and made loads of friends throughout the way. Um, and then, you know, the, the, the videos have always been absolutely excellent. And I suppose watching those videos made me want to go out and get a camera and have a stab at it myself. <clears throat> and I remember the first video I ever did was out in New Zealand and it was all with a GoPro. And I absolutely cringe now when I watched that first video, but <laughs> back then, you know, it was just everything, being able to capture that day's fishing in video and then watch it back and then share it with your friends was just a really, really great feeling. So I sort of got into that a little bit more. And then, you know, the, the world of Loop, you know, we call it uh, Loop Army or Loop Active. People are generally quite active and just really, really great guys that you can create a new relationship with, go fishing with um join on trips together what we've done is we've met up with other um filmmakers and we've gone on epic trips around the world and um, creating media as well um 
So, you know, regarding the, the tackle, it's a very, very innovative company. They've got some great rod designers and real, real designers and clothing designers. And, you know, they've got all the lines that you need in a, for, for the salmon uh, fishing and trout fishing. And then they, and then they bought out the 7X, which was pretty innovative. Um, it's a seven-sided blank construction made out of uh, premium grade carbon fiber. And it was just something completely new. You know, everyone's bringing out a, a new circular rod and uh, it turned a lot of heads. And when we started to use it, it's people ask often when they come to shop, what action is it? And, you know, it, it actually says it's a medium fast action rod on the blank. And the nature of that is because it flexes quite deeply through the core, through the um, blank, which is where a lot of that power is generated. And it feels slightly like a medium fast action blank as you're, um, as you're casting, but it acts and performs like a fast action rod. It almost uh -huh. doesn't want to be classed as any specific action because it's its own unique action. Um, and we've just been blown away by it, you know, both in the double-handed and the single-handed uh, rods. It's just something else. Um, there's a really, really great video by Klaus Freemore, who's the designer uh, online, and he goes uh, into it in a lot more detail. But what I say is you've got to feel it, you've got to try it. And once you have, it's, um, it's out of this world, completely different to other rods out there on the market. So it stands on its own, you know. It stands on its own. That's pretty neat. Where you, it's almost like you're labeling it, you know, to you know the medium fast action, and you give it the, the common labels. But because there isn't an existing rating system for it, it's just basically you're you're like, well, I wish I could just say, you know, it's 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 just seven X. What's the action? Dude, the thing's a seven X. Period. Exactly. Like you, you you have to. It's like test driving, you know, a, a sports car. It's like you you can look at it all day long. You, you, you know, you can hear it all day long, but until you put your hand on the wheel and put your foot down on the accelerator, you're not going to understand, you know. So what were you going to say, we, Ben? Nico and I were on the section of the Truckee. You know, we hiked out to it. The river bends in that spot, and essentially there's two pools. And so one of the pools was quite far away from the side of the shore we were on. And at that spot, it's really not practical to cross over to the other side. And so we had uh, vegetation right to our back. It was a classic situation. And I tried um, that loop rod. Nico yeah, had it. Yeah, it was, and, a, it, was the, uh, it was the OptiNext. Yeah, what we were using was the OptiNext switch. Yeah. And it's it, it was interesting, you know, when I first thought, hey, I'm going to, you know, use a, I'm going to do with the double hands here i first thought of conan the barbarian you know one of those episodes of holding a giant sword and and wielding pure power but what i found was quickly like you were saying you just had to be extremely subtle it was the smallest of movements would just send that line so far to the other pool and i can have vegetation in my back it was it was, um, I was putting in, the, le the less effort I put in, the further it went, as opposed yeah. to using a lot of exertion. It, it was just like, um, I don't know, I was really blown away with 
with the ease and how how little movement it required. Yeah, he, he let he let out like a happy, like a happy yelling. What he's like? What? Because <laughs> he was just like that's that's ridiculous. Because the whole time you know he's sitting there with the, the nine footer and just you know false casting and going like, oh dang it, I can't get in there. And I'm like, all right, here let's switch it up. And then you know, and he just does a little roll cast, and he's just like. Like, like it was silence for a second and then he just kept doing it and it was just it was <laughs> it's awesome to watch because you know it, it's opening up you know that's a piece of water that we've gone to you know you know a bunch of times and it's just like ah but i can't get to that far i can't get to that far seam you know oh, i can't get to the other side of that rock oh i can't get to that holding spot because <clears throat> you know i don't have enough reach you know i got all this brush behind me and it was it, it's just awesome you know to see people experience that you know for the first time and to really really understand it you know and, and like you said just like with with the 7x it's like until you put your hands on it i could explain it to you all day long yeah you know? but until you experience it it's just like that's unbelievable like, totally less is more there ben as well because you know yeah when, that's when what i noticed yeah you, you wouldn't believe how just altering your grip will completely change someone's casting you know so you with that top hand i always like to think of it as the top hand is what guides the rod around it's what creates the shapes of your d loops and it what creates tracking on the forward cast but it's the bottom hand that drives it and so we find a lot of people coming from trout fishing to well single-handed casting to two-handed casting very top hand dominant and they're trying to push it out with that top hand and not use that bottom hand and very often just really loosening that uh grip of the upper hand almost just holding it with like two fingers and making sure they've got the butt section of the rod right at the bottom and one of the exercises is we we get them sound send ripples down the line so we come up into the roll cast position and we just send a little ripple okay we don't want it to turn over we're just sending little ripples down the line and then i get them to just give it a little bit more still failing and nine times out of ten, what happens is people get it and they send a ripple, but it turns over. And we come off the power, off the power, off the power until we're not able to turn it over. We're just sending little ripples. And then we add 5%. And we add 5% power and then it turns over. And then they realize exactly how much effort is actually required to turn over a short length of line. And then you can start to incorporate that into that forward delivery. I'd always rather somebody make a cast that doesn't quite succeed and add 10% power to it afterwards than have somebody put in 200% too much effort into it and they're getting tired during the day, they're losing the nice loop shapes, they're losing the presentation. Less is always more. Find out how little you effort you can actually use to make that cast work and then, you know, add it up incrementally depending on how far you want to cast. Oh, absolutely. And then I think the other advantage I've seen with... Um, you know, let's say we're we're a big fan. We're a big fan of the loop switch rods um, between the the new uh, the Q series. Um, you know, the traditional Evo Tech um, and the OptiNext, uh, and <laughs> it's been great because not only do we have that additional reach, but and I like to talk just talk to this just a little bit is is the power you have over quality fish, and you know. I mean, a recent experience using, I believe it was my Evo Tech seven weight, uh, hooked into a Lahontan cutthroat trout of 
31, 32 inches in nature. And weight wise, didn't have a scale. Sorry. But I mean, that, that could have been anywhere between a 12 and 16 pound fish at that length. Mm-hmm. And the fight was an exceptional fight, but at no point was I ever in danger of being overpowered by that fish. The only thing I could have run out of would have been talent. <laughs> and luckily, and luckily I didn't, but it, I think it's fascinating. So it, that, that, I think that's another advantage is having that extra leverage on fish, yeah. you know, and that extra advantage of, you know, leader and tippet protection. You know, you sometimes you could run slightly lighter. I know that day um, I was being a bit of a maverick and I was running an eight pound, um, an eight pound tippet for a fish that big. And at no point did it, I don't think it ever overstressed the line, no, not damage, no, nothing like that, um, that I could visually see, um, and cleanly landed a fish and, and same day also had, uh, a client with me and he, uh, he did the same, you know, at landed one, I think that was actually heavier than mine, um, on the same thing, like on eight pound test and, and he was hooked, you know, he came out there with a, with a, with a nine foot, um, you know, eight weight, uh, you know, you know, regular old, you know, heavyweight uh, for for Pyramid Lake. Yeah, I mean, you, like, you, you want to come away from those stiff rods, don't you? You know, uh, yeah. there was a period when everyone was bringing out these super stiff casting tools, and that's what they were. They were yeah. epic for casting really great distances. Yeah. But when you caught a fish on a, a, a really small size, 12 or 14 double, you were pulling hooks. When you're fishing like tippets, you're breaking off. And it's, um, we've got to decide what we're doing. Are we going to a casting tournament or are we going fishing? And if you're going fishing, you need to be able to have a rod where you can cast um, the distances that you need and, and get the performance out of the rod. But also you need to be able to play that fish um, well. You need to be able to play it on light tippets and small flies. You also don't want it too soft that you know you can't get the fish in and right. just finding that medium balance and and i'd actually say that you know 90 percent of the loop rods that i use certainly here they they have that sweet spot in performance and performance for playing fish as well there are some you know really fast action uh, models in the range there but that's then you're looking at saltwater species where where you need that really stiff rod because you're going to have a GT going 100 mile an hour away from you, you know, so that it's just, it's just choosing the right tool for the job, I suppose, isn't it? No, absolutely. And and yeah, no. And with that, I think speaking of having the right tools, that makes you pretty flexible in, in where you can fish and your fishing styles. So I, I would imagine that you probably pick up and, and maybe, and maybe venture outside of, of Scotland and, you know, maybe you can speak a little bit to some of the, the the fly fishing trips that Twin Peaks does. Like, where have you been? Have you done South America? Have you done New Zealand or or anything like that? Maybe you can dive into that a little bit. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's, it's a funny one, you know. Um, I, I always had the ambition to fish around the world as much as I could you know so um even from even from a young age um my parents traveled quite a lot but even around uni we were we were planning trips and you know some of those were we we, uh, i remember once we booked a ticket my brother and i to a village called lineal in northern sweden 
where we met a guy who didn't speak any English, but he had a, he had a website that was translated into English and he hired uh-huh. out uh, um, inflatable kayaks. So we turned up and um, we, we got an inflatable kayak and a hand-drawn map, which was uh, horrendous. And he drove us two hours uh, up river and then dropped us off. And we had planned to um, raft down the Lineal River. Now, the Lineal in places is a kilometre wide. Um, and they have Baltic oh, no. salmon running there. So in the kayak we got, and the last thing he said was, uh, you want life jacket? And we're like, yeah, please, yeah, we really do want them. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, you're good with rapids. <laughs> and then he went, he left. So we had a, a you know, a box for all our food. We had a, our first DSLR camera. Uh, and we, we had a kit and in the river we got and we just rafted down and we'd get to each rapids, park up, fish down what was fishable, and uh, hike back up and then go down the rapids. So I'll never forget like day three, we haven't slept because we were actually hit by the Russian summer. So it was 30 degrees every day, mosquitoes, sand flies, midges, you name it, were biting and it was about four o'clock in the morning and we found these grade four rapids <laughs> like holy smokes we didn't know oh, that no. was and um we actually um fished most of the, the pocket water down lugged all the stuff down then um and then four o'clock in the morning we actually set the camera up on a um on a video so we could film ourselves coming past it um and you know that was just a small example of me and Will going on an adventure, but obviously that that naturally um, progressed. So you know we've spent multiple um, trips in Patagonia, particularly um, southern Patagonia, so Tierra del Fuego, uh, Rio Gallegos, and Chile, and to a point where you know just gone with a backpack, a fly rod, and gone for a month or two months, um, one of us or two of us fishing public waters of some of the rivers down there, making lots of friends out there, joining locals for asados. And and, and now actually I'd, I'd say we have an extended family down there. Um, so as a result of that, you know, um, each time we come back, we have these stories to tell. People are like, hey, can can you take us with you next time you go down there? And we were like, oh, I don't know, let me speak to, uh, speak to the guys, see if we can't make it happen. So, um, so yeah, so the first trip we did down there, we partnered up with uh, Rafael Gonzalez, who's a really good friend of ours, who runs Magellanes Fly Fishing. And this is um, on a river just in Torres del Paine National Park itself. So you're, you're under the towers, you've got the grey glacier, which you can see, you've got the rear grey coming down, and you've got this section of this other river. And it has the biggest Chinook salmon I've ever come across and consistently catches big fish on the fly as well. So when we first went down there, um, we went down with the locals. No one really fly fished it. It was, just, it was a spinning river. And, you know, I've seen guys put two 40-gram tobies back to back and put it into a deep hole and pull out a 40-pound Chinook. Uh-huh. Um, but, you know, we were keen to do it on the fly. The first two trips we went out there, we did, and we we figured it out. We did. Um, we figured out the gear that you needed, the the way that you need to present the flies, and where the best spots are, when the best time of year is, and um, and to a point where you know we were regularly catching fifty pound chinook once a week, um, catching thirty to forty pounds daily, 
Um, and coming from coming from Scotland, we're always chasing that 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 big fish. And in Scotland, I'd I'd, I'd say that mark is about twenty pounds. You know, you get a twenty pound in Scotland, anywhere between twenty and thirty. You've done really well. That's a really, really nice fish. You don't know when the next one of those is going to come along. So in Chile, I'd, I suppose that category is more like 40. Like 30s are like, yeah, another 30, really nice, you know. But <laughs> exactly. But we're looking at that 40. We're looking to that 40 to 50 pound mark. Um, okay. And nothing really prepares wow. you for, for playing a fish like that on a fly rod. I mean, to a point where, you know, we are usually using... 15 foot 10 weight rods but we've caught 40 pounders on 13 foot eight weights you know small rods sure. and i've seen guys uh, catch on single handers as well so yeah so, so that was the start of uh that was the start of our trips and we we took some friends down from um from scotland absolutely loved it big success we've been building that uh, trip up so we've uh, done it for three years in a row now um and uh, our relationship with Raphael, we just keep improving the trip more and more each time. Um, so yeah, that's that's one of our, our favorites that we do. Um, but we also host two lodges. Um, I was I was lucky to spend about three years guiding in New Zealand, but it was only, um, I'd only guide there three months a year. So it'd be December, January, February. Uh, so I'd finished uh, guiding in Scotland. Um, Come to around about late November, jump on a flight, and I was guiding for a lodge called Fjordland Lodge uh, down in Fjordland. Um, and that was, well, I, no one needs to explain New Zealand, you know. It's it's the best right. sight fishing in the world. The trout are the size of salmon, and dry fly action is just in, insane, as well as the uh, nymph fishing. But the scenery and everything about it, New Zealand is a mecca. And although it might be getting a little bit busier now, it is still the mecca for for, for that trout fisherman. So we've been lucky to host um, some American friends um, over there as well and take them to a lodge and take them to some of those home rivers where, where we used to guide. Um, yeah, and then we, we go to Norway each year on a really, really, really cool river called the Orelva, um, just north of Trondheim. And that is a spectacular place as well. It, it has... Norway's quite famous for quite large Atlantic salmon. Sure. So, you know, if you're looking for a, a high 20s into the 30s Atlantic, Norway is going to be right up there in one of the places to go. Um, but what I really love about this specific river is it's relatively small in places. It's um, slightly slower flowing than a lot of the rivers, like the, the Nampson, the Gaula, and the Alta, really quite fast rivers. But this one's a little bit slower. And it is gin clear. So we've been able to utilize some of the, the Canadians tactics of fishing dry flies, fishing bombers. Um, and so to all of our guests that, that come out to the Orelva with us, we say, right, you're going to need a two handed rod for swinging through the big pools. So a 13 and a half foot or a 14 footer is going to be ideal for that. But you also need a 10 foot seven weight. Or a, or a nine foot eight weight or a single handed rod, because sometimes you're in these little backwaters these little creeks or these little pockets uh -huh. and you're sight fishing to atlantic salmon so you're literally pitching the dry flies in and watching the fish come up and take it um uh -huh. that is pretty pretty special um yeah so we usually go there in uh, june and a week in august as well and um yeah and we're 
we want to keep doing more of it. As I said, my our ambition is to, you know, learn new places, explore new places, fish new waters, uh, and then ultimately share those experiences with with some of our friends and our customers. Well, if, and if I know. Uh, oh, go ahead, Ben. <laughs> oh, I, I was just going to say before Nico, I, I know that where you live. When we were talking before the podcast, you showed us just right out your window. And yeah. And that's the D river right there. Um, it's, it's very, it's such a beautiful place. Yeah. I mean, the, the D is, um, renowned for fishing tiny, tiny flies and catching quite big salmon, um, because it's gin clear. It runs straight out of the Cairngorm national park. Uh, even, even today we're at about two and a half feet and falling and it is gin clear because it's all snowmelt you know and our season starts at the beginning of february and it ends halfway on the 15th of october so we've got quite a long season um, and we actually have a, a beat connected to our, our fly shop and our fly school here that's our awesome school. so we've got two um two and three quarter miles of single bank um fishing on a beat called Crathis castle and and the the connection of the the fly school to the beat just works so well because you know our our aim is to be that first step for people getting into fly fishing. It's the I've never done it before. I kind of see all these guys out on the river and it looks like quite good fun. Where do I start? I've got so many questions and I don't know who to ask. So we're like, hey, come on down. We'll give you a wee lesson on uh, what you need to do um, to learn the casting because I, I I don't want anyone to wasted days fishing by learning to cast i think the two separate things um so we always like to run a casting lesson separately with wool on the end focus on what we need to do it do some uh, theory and some mechanics here in the shop and then get them to a level where we're like hey you're ready for your first day's fishing let's let's take it there on the beat let's see if we can't catch your salmon you know and we've got all the gear we've got all the waders and all the rods and everything so it's, it's a matter of see if that sports for you let's let's get them hooked you know and then when they need the gear and everything else we can supply everything within our little bubble here in the northeast of scotland and you gave you gave uh you gave us the walking tour earlier before we started the the, the podcast and you know one thing i like to point out if i can visually describe the shop to our listeners is that it's it's one it's fantastic it's just the, the way it's put together um it has wonderful flow to it but the, the first thing that i noticed is that it, especially for a beginner i know or or novice level uh fly angler walking into their shop the one thing that they're not going to experience is being overwhelmed you walk in and it, it's 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 visually capturing but you don't have an an overload of stuff you know like when it like like here in the U.S., you can walk into a, a traditional sporting goods store and you have aisle upon aisle upon aisle of fly tying stuff, of tools, of rods, of reels, you know, and, and just banks of flies. And you're just like, well, what do I, what do, I do? You know, what, where, do, where do I start? And yours had flow to where it's just like, okay, well, you know, here I got my line. I got the tools. You know, here's, here's a nice fly cabinet with, with the essentials for here. You know, and oh, here's my here's the rod collection, and you know, here's here's A, B, C, D, and E, and F. You know, and it's it's just kind of like boom, and then you have everything else, which is nice, and it's 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 it, it fulfills that less is more approach, but at the same time, you have more than you'll ever need. You know, yeah, which is which, I mean, which is we, great. 
Uh, to be in retail, you know, so this is this is what we call a loop field center. So so we 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 stock all the loop products, right? Okay. And um, if there's any gaps in what loop don't do, then uh-huh. we stock what we personally use. So there's nothing in here that we don't personally use. Yeah, to a point where we have first aid kits, we have uh, mid repellent, we have bite and sting relief, whistles, forceps. CR, Maxima, head torches. We've literally gone through a list of, you know, that trip when we went to Sweden floating down the line, you know, those backcountry trips in New Zealand and Patagonia. You, you've got to be really selective in your gear when you're doing those sort of trips. It's like, right, I've got a 120-litre Bergen and I need a tent. I need clothing, but the right clothing. I'm only taking two pairs of pants. I'm only taking two t-shirts i'm taking a waterproof jacket i'm taking an insulator i've got a sleeping bag i've got camera equipment right i've got rods i've got reels i've got lines what are the bare essentials and what can you rely on so it's about getting good quality products and not stocking 10 of the same product across different brands because that's pointless i want to be able to turn around to a customer and say hey we, we use this and I've used it for the last six, seven years. I love it. There's, there's other models out there on the, on the market, but you know, these are what we use. Um, here you go. And, you know, from a, as a loop field center point of view, uh, I've been in some of those shops before, which are more like a supermarket, like a mega store. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah. you're a customer and you've just walked in and you say, Hey, I'm, um, I'm looking for a dry fly line for my five weight rod. Um, I fish medium to small size rivers. Um, can you help me out? So he goes to the um, the five weight line um, section in the shop. And the, the, there's one brand that has four five weights in different tapers. There's another brand that has another three. There's another brand that has another four. There's another brand that has another four. There's another six over there from two other brands. So all of a sudden, he's got 22 five-weight fly lines to choose from for this one customer. You know, a lot of them will be similar tapers. There won't be much in it. So what is the deciding factor? Is it, you know, what what brand you follow? Is there any particular brand that you want to use? Because... A fly line of a certain taper for a five weight you know there are so many options out there so we like to just keep it really simple we've got three five weight lines available in different tapers tell us what rivers you fish and we'll pick out the one that we would suggest would be best for you but before you take it we'll just take you outside and just have a quick cast with it on on the river or at the casting school just to make sure you're fully happy with it you know um I wouldn't want to be in that situation where I've got to choose from 25 different five weight lines and, you know, hand on heart, say that you sold the, the line best for that application that they're looking for. So, yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's, and you're not getting pushed on uh, a couple different factors. Like what's, uh, what do we have too much inventory on which manufacturer is giving, you know, that sales department or that company a spiff or an incentive to sell, you know, or, Hey, Hey, let's let's run on margin. Which one's got the best margin? Oh, well, that's the best line, you know. So, <laughs> hey, it's just sales. That's how it yeah. is. That's that's the world I live in. So it's it's you know, <laughs> so it's refreshing to know you're walking in, and it's just it's it's a pure. You're walking into a pure environment where it's like like you just said, you know, where you're fishing, what's your situation, what type of flies, you know, what species, 
um, and, and what skill level. And then, boom, they have a box in their hand, and 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 on they go. Yeah, you know. So that's 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 pretty awesome. Hey, you know, and, and with with all this, with all this travel that you do, um, all this instruction that you give, um, you know, you got to get hungry. You gotta you gotta you gotta fuel you gotta fuel this passion somehow. And uh, I, I think I think I'll let I'll let Ben kind of probe you on this a little bit. Um, we we definitely are curious in all your world travels if number one you have a favorite burrito um and maybe number two uh you know maybe a favorite cuisine that you've had either at home or at broad that that you just look forward to on a fishing adventure that you absolutely have to have or wish you had and and dive into that a little bit and then i'll i'll let i'll let ben rate and scale your burrito experience this is always a good one alistair you're gonna love it <laughs> I'm, I'm, gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna need some more education into your burritos i want you to recommend one for me <laughs> oh my god <laughs> well i hope i hope it's better so i i know remember we did um we did a uh our when we did our first podcast with with wes at you fish scotland he right off the cuff, he just came off screaming. He's like, Oh, I've had a haggis burrito. And we're just like, We don't even know how to answer that. <laughs> <laughs> so and, and that was that was the, the sheep intestine was was the, the wrapper, correct? Uh, yeah, yeah, he just, it is, just like yeah. Oh, yeah. But it, it's like the, the sheep's awful, but it's uh haggis is amazing, guys. It's just Every butcher has their own recipe. You know, it's slightly different from everyone you go to. Um, it's about the oats that they mix in it. It's about all the the, the seasoning that they put in it. And, you know, the, the thought of sheep intestine doesn't even come into your mind when you've got it on some toast or, or in a burrito. It's, um, it's, it's really good. Like, to the point where we, I mean, the, the traditional Scottish dish is haggis, neeps, and tatties. So you've got turnips, you've got some potatoes, and you've got some haggis that's boiled, and that's it. And it sounds terrible. I mean, there's no sauce involved with it. It sounds like what? Are you kidding me? But I'll tell you, it's um, oh, it, it's amazing. It's just a staple diet, you know. We'll Keep, we'll, we'll have to try it one day. Yeah. <laughs> so so we'll we'll do this. How about this? Give us give us one of your favorite favorite international dishes. And then I'll roll it to Ben, yeah. and I'll, I'm going to let Ben describe what you'd look for in a burrito, and maybe I'll give you a suggestion. You know, if you're over, ever over in the states or South America, on, on on what to ask for. But you'll now you'll be you'll be educated, you'll be versed and yeah. ready to get the right thing. But let's start with your with your best international meal, or one of your most memorable. Well, that I'm you know, I'm just going to make Ben water at the mouth here a little bit. So my my yeah. girlfriend is uh, Parisian. And uh, her father cut uh, cooks a coupe de boeuf, which is the rib with the ribeye still attached. And uh, literally yep. just cooks it in a pan with butter for 20 to 25 minutes. And it's enough to serve probably three people. But that, with some simple vegetables, is perfect. Or there's there's one other one, and that is when you're on a camping trip, it doesn't matter what you had to 
eat, whether it was rice, whether it was a freeze-dried meal, no matter what it was, I've always got a Yeti flask with a little bit of red wine and a little bit of cheese. And that's the that's the end to my, doesn't matter where in the world we are, finish the day with a little sip of wine and a little piece of cheese. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. And with, uh, I mean, that's almost kind of like your, your borderline, borderline charcuterie right there. All you need is, you know, some fine, you know, sausages or salamis, a couple of that, and you would be, you would be good to go. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and then I think what you explained there with that, with that ribeye with the bone on, I know what they, what they call that here. I mean, that's what we consider like a classic, like the, the tomahawk, um, Mm. tomahawk cut right yeah. and you, you could feed multiple multiple people with that and that that sounds exquisite that sounds super awesome um it's, and, it's the way it's the way it's cooked in in france so you know it's uh yeah something special <laughs> no it it totally is it totally is hey ben if you can give a why don't you give your descriptive <clears throat> to alistair on on how to source and how to find a good burrito maybe give them a few pointers on <laughs> what you look for and start having i think let's start number one start start with the tortilla what tell alistair what to look for and give him the full once again give him the jurassic park well nico likes to ask about the jurassic park rating have you seen the, it it's a, a classic movie here uh jurassic park are yeah. you familiar with it? Yeah. <laughs> well, there's a famous scene in the movie where there's the T-Rex. And the T-Rex now is missing. And these people are trapped in front of where, where its home is, essentially. Yeah. And they're looking at a, um, a cup inside of the car. And every step of the T-Rex the water kind of pulsates mm-hmm. and it pulsates more and more. And so as far as tortilla quality goes, the quality of the wrapper, we like to say, is there enough there is there enough grease in there to where if a T-Rex was approaching, you could see a, a pulsation of, of some sort of liquid. <laughs> right right and that and that and that transfers over to like the lard content in the tortilla or the fat content and and you know you have a quality uh, uh tortilla when when you have a certain level of transparency right so most of the burrito tortillas are made out of flour so the higher the fat content if you can if you can't make out anything on the other side of that tortilla you just have this solid tortilla that that's lower on the scale if you can if you can make out like a meat nugget you know some grains of rice or whatever the contents are in that burrito you're like i think i could kind of see you know it's like a fog it's like a heavy fog where you can in the distance you can like i can make out some trees i think there's a house you know if you have that effect alistair that's that that's number one that's number one and number two well, yeah. Well, number two is the, the permeability of that of that uh, um, of that tortilla as well. Well, it has that high fat content. It almost seems transparent, almost like you could fall through it. You know, like if, if you got miniaturized and you stood on it, you just fall in like quicksand. 
well, that's a ruse. You want that fat content to actually maintain the moisture levels of that burrito. So if you bite into a burrito and it blows out on the back end, that's an, that's another mark against it. You want that fat to act like, you know, it's like oil and water, Alistair. Mm-hmm. That fat is going to repel the ability for any of those just exquisite juices to fall out like onto your lap or or whatever. All right, so uh, the, the containment level of that shell is important. Um, and there's another special thing, um, especially like if you're going to travel, let's say you're in South America, um, you're going to find some common burritos there as you would North America. And I would, I would highly recommend those of that are packed with a, a certain type of chorizo. Um, uh, you know, if, if they have their own blend, like, like in Argentina, they may have an Argentine chorizo, an Argentine, uh, sausage. Um, but Ben's going to describe to you the wrapping element. And this is an international thing. Look, I'm never going to say much to burritos, guys. I'm getting guys, educated. Look, no, this is important, Alistair. You, you never knew this. You know, you've taught us a lot, you know, about, about fishing around the world. And we're going to teach you on how to navigate the world a little bit better on a yeah. full belly. So with, with, with the wrapper, Ben, please explain the wax this factor. Is, oh, the wax factor. Yeah, that you know, it's very common here where they'll use a wax paper to wrap the burrito. Mm-hmm. And depending on where you get it, you know, especially now during the COVID times, they're they're pre-wrapped. But the burrito will we look at it as a higher quality when there's the evolution of the wax paper becoming one with the actual tortilla. We see it as a good thing, and we call it a burrito candle. <laughs> but, you know, I, I did want to, yeah, so, you know, for you, what, 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 what else have you seen? I, I really love that where you have your, um, your girl's, uh, Peruvian father cooking up. I mean, what do you look for when you're traveling around the world to where you say, hey, this is a good, this is going to be great. I'm going to stop here. I'm going to try this place. Are there certain common elements? Oh, I, th- I think the, the, the best thing is actually um, staying at uh, a local's house, eating their home-cooked food. So in Argentina or Chile, it's got to be an asado. And, and, and those guys eat late. So, you know, we'd come back from a day's fishing. We'd get a text saying asado at Martin's house. We'd go around to Martin's house at about, you know, seven o'clock. They're lighting the fire. Oh, wow. (laughs) Once the fire gets hot, they've got to let it die down to get that perfect heat. To put that (laughs) half a lamb, to put those meat cuts on there, to put all the sausage, the the pretas, the the black black pudding, blood sausage as well. And then, so like, and it's a communal thing. So we're cooking over the fire. We've got a little water bottle full of chimichurri and oil, and everyone's got their own slight sort of concoction. We're spraying it over the lamb, cooking it really, really slowly. And, you know, by about half past 12, you're digging into some really, really nice food, you know, but that's how they do it. And it's all about, actually, the, the dinner starts with the preparation of it. It's about getting the meat on there, keeping the fire right, the right temperature. And that's what I'm always, always amazed at, actually. It's, it's actually just 
eating what the locals eat, eating how they eat, trying to learn a little bit of a new culture. Um, that's what's important. I, you know, going to a fancy restaurant doesn't really do it for me, you know, because yeah, if you're going to a Michelin star place, it's, it's, you're not going for the food, you're going for the, the art on a plate, you know, and I completely sure. get that, the flavors that they can put together. Um, but yeah, I, I, I learn the most from um, eating eating with the locals um, yeah, and trying to immerse yourself into their culture as much as you can. And I love this story about Argentina yeah. with with the lamb. You know, and I I could picture it how how it's 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 all spread out. It's over the coals, the chimichurri. You're you're striking all the right points here. This is yeah. this is amazing. Yeah, so yeah. On our, on our trip to um, uh, to Chile, on our hosted trip, we have a, a, a chef there that uh, is a fishing guide as well. So he comes out on the on the river with us, and then you know we. We don't want to have too much of a meat overload, Ben. You'd, you'd struggle in Patagonia to go veggie. Um, you know, one yeah. time after spending a month out there, um, we're at another asado, and you know, all the all, all the family were the kids were running around, all the wives and the cousins, and everyone was there. And you know, there's a potato salad, and there's a, a there's a couscous dish, and some salad. Oh, and I'm dying for some salad, you know. So I go over with a plate, and I just take some salad and a bit of couscous, and you get absolute daggers from the guys. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing? That's for the women and children. Come on, come over here. Oh I'm like, my! I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, meat for like every day for the last you know three four weeks i need some salad in my life you know yeah, you yeah. Know we, we make sure all of our guests that come with us they experience that sort of fairly meat heavy asados i mean a side is a potato salad and there might be a, a tomato mozzarella side to it as well but that's it. it it's about the meat it's a meat culture and it's the way that it's cooked slowly is is the key I'm very strict. I do have a rule that if I'm at a place and somebody makes a meal, I'm going to eat it. I'm going to love it. I'm going to be grateful for it. So I I definitely, it would be, I would be partaking in the meat in that environment. That's for sure. Funny you say that, Ben. I've uh, I've got some really good friends who actually went to school with him. So I haven't seen him for 10 years. And he wasn't he wasn't vegan when I um, when we knew each other. Anyway, so I used to do some deer stalking, and um, I, I shot a, a roebuck, butchered it up, and it's in the freezer. And we've got some you know special guests coming. I haven't seen my mate for ten years, so he gets so we so we cook the venison haunch, all the sides and that. We're outside having a um, having a glass of wine, and, and we serve it. And you know him and his girlfriend, they just swallowed it all up they absolutely loved it and it wasn't until the next morning that they said okay now we can tell you we're actually vegan but we have one (laughs) if if someone else is cooking for us and we don't have control then it goes and the fact that it was organic meat shot and butchered and everything else um yes it's okay that's awesome great wow wow I love how you hit us yeah. with this culinary experience. This is this is awesome. This is awesome. So, hey, uh, Alistair, I wanted to uh, extend to our listeners if they are interested, in maybe uh, you know when things maybe open up a little bit and we're we're able to travel over to Scotland again, and or 
well, when you start doing some hosted trips again, how could somebody get a hold of you? Is do you have a website? Do you have a you know what, what's the best way to get a hold of, of Twin Peaks? Yeah, so just uh, Twin Peaks Fly Fishing is the name. So info at twinpeaksflyfishing.com is our email. Um, but you know social media is so big facebook instagram hit us on there um if you're looking to plan a trip to scotland and whether it's you know just on the river d or whether you want to plan a whole tour around scotland you know we work with wes quite a lot so we, we try and work it that if, if somebody wants to tour scotland and they want to fish along the way we can probably between the the numerous guides uh, around here we can make that happen and and create a really really cool trip um so yeah get in touch and even if it's just some friendly advice that you need and you don't need to book a trip with us just always happy to answer any questions and and feel free to get in touch that's awesome and i like to add to that alistair um his his fishing experience around the world very translates very well to whatever application or whatever species that you're chasing and more than likely he's probably he's probably already done it he's probably been there um, so he speaks from whole-handed experience, and it's it's awesome. And we we hope to have you out here one day, again when when, th- when things kind of clear up. We let we love to get you on some of our local waters, experience some of the great expanses of the the Sierra Nevadas, and and definitely if we get you out here at the right time, put you on Pyramid Lake. I know you've had the fortunate opportunity to fish, you know, places like Jurassic, and I think Jurassic is is I haven't personally been there, but everything I've seen, wow, what a what a great place but i think i think you could experience maybe that next level here yeah. like jurassic Ju- jurassic plus it's just it's ridiculous it really is it's it's just, it's just it it just no rhyme or reason to it you know to fish for a prehistoric trout and and the, the fight that they give and, and the view that you have it's it's, it's time travel it, it really is it's, it's fascinating so we hope to have you out here one day um but once again hey Thank you so much Thanks for joining for us. Thank you. It's, it's been awesome. You've got an open ticket to Scotland whenever you can make it. Yep, we're we're looking forward to it. We're we're counting down the days and getting vaccined up. So yeah, hopefully exactly. hopefully sooner than later. <laughs> so <laughs> to your right. All right. Well, all right. Thanks for having us, guys, and you have a great weekend. All right. Thank you. You too. Thank you. And until next time, tight lines. Tight lines. We all love the thrill of a great catch on the water, and we also love ensuring that it is a thrill we can experience time and time again. We also drum up one heck of an appetite after a day on the water, and that's where Sierra Gold Seafood comes in. They offer a full range of sustainable seafood and freshwater fish options that you can prepare at home or in the field to fuel your outdoor journey. So visit them today at their marketplace on Greg Street and Sparks, or check out the website at sierragoldseafood.com to get stocked up before your next big fly fishing adventure.